Hey there, Midnight Warriors, and welcome to another fortnightly episode of War Starts at Midnight. I'm Chris Gallagher. And I'm Hunter Cates. We're two myopic Midwestern millennials morbidly obsessed with having our 15 minutes of fame. Though, we'd also settle for seven and a half minutes. On today's show, we're reviewing Mistress America, the dramedy that reunites star Greta Gerwig with her co-writer and director Noah Baumbach. Then in special features, we will discuss great directors and actress collaborations. And finally, we'll wrap up the show as we always do with some really rad recommendations. But first... Well, Chris, autumn has fallen, and that means another summer movie season has come to a close. Not only was this the most commercially successful summer season in history, but I would argue one of the most critically successful as well. I can't really think of a truly awful picture that did well. The bad pictures bombed, as they should, and the good pictures did well. So reviewing the the lineup last night, I would say that this is probably one of the best summers ever. You mean the good pictures like uh, Mad Max Fury Road? Uh, Did you get a chance to see that one? I, I met was that the one with Mel Gibson? I think so. Yeah, I mean, you know how I love Mel Gibson, so yeah, I was a big fan of that. Uh-huh. Um, so, would you agree with that that definition of this summer? Because I, I can't really think of a summer season that I would say is better. Uh, since we've been around, maybe not. Yeah, exactly. Um, in, in our collective cultural memory, I don't think. There's yeah, I mean, one. there is that. A couple years ago, uh, Draft House did a big. I think it was 1982. Um, kind of they the big they kind of presented it as the big summer of blockbusters, and you had like E.T., Rocky Three, The Wrath of Khan, Fast Times at Ridgemont High, um, a lot of really great stuff in that. Uh, so I mean, maybe maybe this will be in twenty years, people will hold or excuse me, thirty years, people will will do a uh summer of twenty fifteen. Well, I don't, I don't even want to think of that 30 years from now. So we'll, <laughs> just, we'll just stick in the here and now. Chris, rather than be predictable and do, hey, what was your favorite? What was your least favorite? What did you kind of like? What did you not like? I think that we should review this summer movie season in the form of dating game questions. So how do you how do you feel about that? I can I can see you're slightly intrigued by this scenario. I'm, I'm slightly intrigued. I don't know if I like it. I honestly I thought we were going to talk about maybe a couple of the movies that we we missed. That, that'll but, come up, but okay, not but okay. not like that. Okay. So Chris, um, you've gone on a date, as it were, with all these pictures. Uh-huh. Which one would you like to get to know better? Is this which one would I like to revisit? Perhaps. Yeah. There uh, there was something there, but there was you there you'd like to know more about it. You'd like to see it again, see what you maybe missed last time. I think, I mean, I really enjoyed it the first time, but I, Mad Max Fury Road, I have not seen again, and I really, really want to. I really want to dive into that one. Um, I just, I, I absolutely loved it. It's it's probably my favorite movie of the year All right. so far and still. Okay. Um, now, part two, or part B to that question then is- Are you, you just asking me all of these questions? You're uh, not, you don't I, have to answer I, yourself? I, I, may, I may throw a few in. I, okay, I think, well, let me, let me bounce it back at you. What would you like to get to know better? I, I think maybe Jurassic Park. I've already seen it twice, so I don't mm-hmm. know if that counts. And so, what I was going to ask you, but I may answer this myself first. Well, this might be more like: Are you gonna are you gonna pop the question, Jurassic World? And- well, it's only been, and I think I said Jurassic Park. Excuse me, Jurassic World. Um, it's only been twice, so that would be rushing things. Uh-huh. But this being our third date, we you should- could take it to Vegas, man. The third date would be Vegas date. I was going to say the third date's probably the movie date. So oh, what I, what movie? Okay, let, let's ask this. What movie would you take Jurassic World to right, see? The movie I would take Jurassic World to see is actually I would go take it to see uh, Jurassic Park. Okay, because, so it could that's going to be tough, bring, but bring some of that nostalgic back to the. Or is this going to be like an at home movie? It night would be, yeah, be like, at, well, I think we're at that point. Come on, third, okay, yeah, yeah. The third day we're at that point. So where would you take? What movie would you take Mad Max for your road to see? I don't know. I think I think Fury Road would be a pretty intelligent little film. So I 
you know, I'm I'm not gonna. Are we are we saying movies that are like on the horizon, or what are we? You no, I know. I, I mean, all of the above. I I think I I think Fury Road would enjoy uh, Sicario. All right, <laughs> the, and, the new Villeneuve. And why do you think that out. is? Um, I mean, it looks like it's pretty dark. It's got some uh, some darkness, some violence, but also some real, you know, some atmosphere, which Fury Road was great with. Um, and a strong female lead. So, all right. So, Fury Road would have something to relate to then. Yeah. All right. Um, we can probably talk about some of the pictures that you saw that we didn't review in this next question. What movie did you see that you had a good time? It was all right, but there's nothing there. There was nothing there, huh? Yeah. You don't want to continue the relationship. Um, I would say maybe Dope. Dope is a movie that I had, and, and maybe I had too high of expectations going into it. But I I thought it was going to be great, and it turned out to be exactly like the predictable three X structure that I you know I I always fear going into a movie like that that's sort of a sort of a comedy but uh, with with some stakes and uh, you know maybe if it's on HBO again maybe I'll give it another whirl and it'll captivate me like my buddy that I went went and saw it with really enjoyed it. And I wish I had that experience with it. So, the, uh, but for right now, you don't think there's anything there? You think the I, relationship I, I don't, might be over? I don't think so. All right. Um, the picture, I was kind of debating this, the picture that I don't really think I'm going to have a relationship with, I enjoyed at the time we had we had fun, but that was it, is Avengers Age of Ultron. Hmm. I can't really foresee myself seeing that or going out of my way to take that on a second date. At, at all? Like not even... It would be a not, e- not even like sit down and have lunch in the food court with it while it's on HBO <laughs> and watch your favorite scene? Maybe a couple of years from now, but by that point I'd be married to Jurassic World. And oh, so yeah, that would that's, be, adul- that's true. That'd be adultery. What, so let, let me get this straight. Would this be that like you and the Indominus Rex then make your own dinosaur baby? Is that how this works? Uh, I'm strictly a one-woman man, and that woman is the T-Rex. Oh, okay. Okay, yeah. so you're going for the... Well, I guess you can't really call a T-Rex a cougar, can you? Uh, she's just a T-Rex. She's about 25 years old, but in T-Rex years, yes, that would probably qualify as a, as a cougar. But she would eat a cougar, so she's really just a T-Rex. Yeah. Or maybe maybe she's a turtle. She's a tortoise. Um. All right. Maybe. Well, actually, she. Or does that does that reptile uh, metaphor extend too far for you? Yeah, it's it's a bit far for me. Um. Speaking of uh, uh, cougar, I guess which of the summer movie selections would you most like to take home to mom? Take home to mom. Probably. I'm going to go inside out. I think my mother would really enjoy Inside Out. So you okay? So this is interesting. You think your mom would enjoy Inside Out, but you think that the one you'd like to get to know better is Mad Max. Well, hold on. I'm not going to be a monogamous movie man like you. Like I have far too little time on this earth to just sit and rewatch the same movie over and over again. There's just so much to see. So uh, yeah, Mad Max is the one that I'm most excited to to get to know a little better. But yeah, I think my mother would really enjoy would really enjoy Inside Out. Um, I would agree with that. As far as my mother, I think your mother would enjoy Inside Out as well, but I think my mom would as well, and then probably Jurassic World, which she actually did see, and she thought it was a solid. Oh, okay, good. yeah, she thought it was okay. I'd <laughs> like to talk to some more about uh, some more about these pictures that uh, we didn't review. Which one is just too much of a party girl for you? Too much of a party girl. Uh, Magic Mike Double XL. See, I, that I, was kind of the answer. You just teed that one up, <laughs> yeah, didn't you? Exactly. Magic Mike Double XL, I will say, is the worst movie I've seen all year. Or the most disappointing, perhaps, movie I've seen all year. No, it's the worst movie I've seen all year, I think. I didn't see We Are Your Friends, so who knows? So you but, can't say. So it yeah. wasn't fabulous? What is that? It, it was a bad ab joke. I'm really sorry. Oh. Oh. I, I thought you were saying the, a movie, I didn't see a movie called Fabulous. No, I, I – and you know, I really enjoyed the first Magic Mike. 
partially, you know, maybe it's it's a little worse because it doesn't have McConaughey. He was great in the first one. It also just feels like it, it feels like they tried to do the thing where it's like, oh, let's make a sequel and, you know, just do the kind of surface stuff and do it more ex- to it to a higher extent, like crank up the volume. I thought the dancing and all of that was even better in the first one. So it was just it was just a disappointment. All there around. was really no reason for it to exist. Yeah, not at all. All right. I, I can't really answer that question because I can't really think of a movie that I saw this year that would qualify as a party girl. <laughs> so we'll just we'll just move on to the our final question. Chris, you you probably already answered this, but I'll ask it again. What movie do you think might be the one? The one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, there was just, just, just a lot of, there's just a of lot the of, summer movies. There's yeah, there, there's a lot of chemistry there. Which one do you think might be the one? Um, I mean, if we're going just summer movies, I think I gotta go. Well, no, I don't know. the The movie we're we're about to discuss might might qualify. We'll have to like we'll have to see. Can I can I renege on my first answer and actually say? Maybe it's Mistress America. Well, but summer movie though. Would you say Mistress America summer? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and we got it. We got it here a bit later than everyone else because we're Oklahoma, right? So exactly. I mean, it was it was firmly before Labor Day when it came out. All right. Uh, then to answer that question myself again, Jurassic World. Um, it, it meets the three criterion. I'd like <laughs> you to just get wanna, it. You invented this entire segment to talk about Jurassic World more, as as if it were a living, breathing woman. Yeah, is what I. Yeah, it would be the one, the one I take home to mom, and then also the one I'd like to get to know better. Uh huh. So it meets all the criteria for a cinematic spouse, you might say. Right. Um, so that's Chris and I's summer movie dating game. We'd certainly like to hear yours. Uh, which movie would you like to, for some reason, marry or take on a second date? Which movie do you think would be the one? Please let us know at hello at warstartsatmidnight.com. If you're still listening. And if you are still listening, then you're definitely going to want to stick around for this review as we take out Noah Baumbach's new picture, Mistress America. She lived exactly how a young woman should live. Who wants to spend her youth well? Must we document ourselves all the time? Must we? She did everything and nothing. You don't know what you're selling. No one will know how to buy it. What are you selling? So many things. Being around her was like being in New York City. I'm an autodidact. Do you know what that means? Yes. That word is one of the things I self-taught myself. People are always taking my ideas. My ex-friend and nemesis, Mamie Claire, stole my ideas and my fiance. And then she literally stole my cats. You must seek out this Mamie Claire. Spirit says you have unfinished business with this woman. You have to listen to Spirit. The young one is right. She's not that young. 10, 10 to 12 years younger. We're contemporaries, okay? Ryan Johnson, Wes Anderson, Shane Carruth, Spike Jones, Noah Baumbach. These are the working directors who most set my heart aflutter when I hear they have something new on the horizon. Sure, I'm taking masters like Scorsese, the brothers Cohen, and Malick for granted with that statement. But if I'm being totally honest, you put the first batch toe-to-toe on an opening weekend with the second batch, and I bet I'll be more intrigued with what the young dudes are cooking up. This, of course, is hypothetical. None of the aforementioned directors have a film release this calendar year. Well, none except for Baumbach, who is generously gracious with not one but two films in 2015. And while we're young, he teamed up once again with Greenberg star Ben Stiller for a midlife crisis comedy that plays kind of like a horror film. It's about 40-somethings worried that they've already wasted their lives away. In Mistress America, Bombeck reunites to collaborate with his star and co-writer from Francis Ha, Greta Gerwig. This one's a quarter-life crisis comedy that plays like, well, a comedy of the slightly morbid screwball variety. 
The film opens on Tracy, played by Lola Kirk, with a montage of her lackluster first semester of college. She's an aspiring fiction writer and a bit of a loner. When her mother asks how school's going, Tracy replies, you know that feeling of being at a party when you don't know anyone? It's like that. All the time. Things begin to change for Tracy one fateful night when she meets her mother's fiancé's daughter, or her soon-to-be stepsister, Brooke, played by Gerwig. Brooke is a decade Tracy senior and seems to have her life in order, a first for Gerwig in a Bombeck movie. When she's not freelancing as an interior designer or coaching spin class, or coming up with cutting-edge fashion trends to be stolen and sold to J. Crew by her ex-best friend and nemesis Mimi Claire, Brooke is preparing to open a restaurant-slash-community-center-slash-salon-slash-general store called Mom's. Possessive. Tracy takes a shine to Brooke and writes a short story based on observations of her newfound mentor. The piece of fiction gains her admission into the school's super-selective briefcase-toting writers' club, and things start to look up for old Tracy. As for Brooke, well... An investor drops out of the restaurant, etc. deal, which leads to dragging Tracy and a couple of her college friends, for added screwball effect, to Connecticut to apologize to Mamie Claire for the rift in their friendship and to beg for money to keep the restaurant dreams alive. Hunter, I'm curious. You've seen both of Bombeck's offerings this year. How did they stack up? And which of his sides do you prefer? The shrewd, cynical, and ultimately fearful one that pervades when he works with Stiller? Or the lighter, altogether more optimistic, though still a little cynical side, that only seems to arise when riding alongside girlfriend and muse Greta Gerwig. And more importantly, you've publicly stated numerous times, and as recently as your article in Wednesday's Midweek Memo, that Mr. Bombeck might actually be stealing from your subconscious to source his films. You've even written an open letter to the director, pleading that he stop mimicking your personality, your fears, and even your likeness. So tell me, did you find any characters in Mistress America to be paralyzingly relatable? You know, Chris, I don't think that paralyzingly is the adjective I would use. Paralyzing, by definition, implies a lack of feeling. Whenever I see some of Noah Baumbach's characters, it is actually an overabundance of feeling. It's like several electric jolts coursing through my body, and I don't really like feelings of empathy or uh-huh. relatability. So to see those, it's it's the exact opposite of paralyzing. It's, it's all-consuming feeling. But to answer your question... I would say that no, that wasn't the case with this or while we're young, for the sole reason being that the fifth slap across the face doesn't hurt quite as much as the first. So you were prepared for it. That's really the only... Well, it's one of those things I was prepared for, it, but also this, my cheek has been deadened by being slapped in the face so many times by Noah Or Bobby. paralyzed, you might say. Uh, it's, it's, well, it's one of those things it's become paralyzed because it's so much relatability that, I, you know, I'm yeah, just a yeah. lump on the ground at this point. Uh, but I would say that I would actually disagree a little bit that there's a distinction between the Wild Were Young style of picture, the Squid and the Whale style of picture, and then the Francis Ha and really? Mistress America. I think that he is a director, much like John Hughes, who we discussed a few episodes ago, whose characters are very much part of their generations and mm-hmm. representations of their generations. And so he started his career focusing on his generation. And then as his generation aged, he focused on aging uh, Gen Xers. And then I think with While We're Young, he switched his gaze in some ways in direct, with Greta he, he Gerwig. He kind of combines both of yeah, them exactly. together. And then with Greta Gerwig's influence, now he's focusing. It's almost like he's bored with Gen Xers and he's focusing on millennials. Millennials mm-hmm. interest him a little well, bit more now. You know, Greenberg, I would say, was definitely on his generation, but on his generation reflecting itself off of like Greenberg is almost the prequel to While We're Young. He's not playing exactly the same character. Ben, ben Stiller's not playing exactly the same character, but there is that, you know, he's, he's staying in his brother's house and um, there's that house party 
at one point where he just sort of it's it's almost like he's landed on a different planet you know he's trying to relate to these kids with music and stuff Mm -hmm. and there's just there's nothing there's no no connection that he can make with them well let me let me ask you this then is you've you've create a distinction i don't really think there is one but how about we look at it this way is do you think that maybe noah bombach since i think we would both agree he is kind of a cynical guy do you think that it's greta gerwig's influence that has provided more optimism or do you think that he even though he sees these issues with the millennials he has more hope for them than he does for his own generation it's tough to say i i mean my initial reaction is that i think it's gerwig um because what francis hall was definitely the first movie that he created that ends on a not so like it, it ends on an up note mm-hmm. really it it ends with um with hope and even something like kicking and screaming his very first film which is about his generation but when they were that age um is still it it still ends pretty melancholy and i think you know, Francis Hawkins on an up note, even while we're young is, is pretty dark throughout, you know, it's dark comedy throughout, but it's still, there's basically a coda at the end that is very optimistic that I would have never expected of Bombeck before Francis Ha. And I think this Mistress America, which he co-wrote once again with Gerwig, um, is just across the board, sort of a lighter film. It has, you know, some, some cynical moments, some, some moments of like still worrying, you know, characters worrying that they have wasted their lives away, but it's doing it in a way that's a little more playful, a little, still a little more optimistic. So do you think that he is going soft? Do you think he's maturing or do you think he's both? Um, that by going I, soft, I he's think, maturing. I, I would say, I think he's maturing and, uh, you know, he's, there's always, you know, someone who it, it seems like with be it filmmakers or musicians, musicians a lot, I think you, you get like the punk rock, angry sort of musicians when they're very young and they have something to rebel against. Once they get older, they start to sort of file off those hard edges and, um, and change and mature and, and become different people. And so I, I feel like that's sort of what's going on here. Maybe you could say he's gone soft, but I think he also has a lot more experience you know, under his belt now and has a more, you know, a broader view of the world. And that's, that's what he's, because he, he definitely makes very personal pictures all the time. No, I mean, brutally personal. And I think that's why, as you'll see in my mid, as you listeners will see in my midweek memo article on our website, but his, his pictures are personal. They're about, they're about him or things he notices. And I just have him to relate to them in many mm-hmm. ways. But I think that he's one of those people who you mentioned punk rockers rebelling against something. And then, of course, John Hughes rebelled against kind of the baby boomer uh-huh. world from the perspective of Gen Xer. What's interesting about Noah Baumbach is he's rebelling against his own generation or and, and he's exposing his generation's deepest insecurities as he did in his first pictures. And now he's doing the same thing with millennials. Because mm-hmm. as you mentioned, there's a level of people feeling like, oh my God, I've wasted my life, which is an astounding feeling considering these people are 18 to 30 years old. The the, yeah. the, the characters are still very young. They still have plenty of time well, to accomplish their dreams. And yet- I, I think that's kind of, sorry to cut you off. It, it, it's kind of what makes uh, Mistress America such a odd little screwball comedy of a movie is like, you really look at it. Brooke is not, she hasn't wasted her life away, but at the same time, she's capable of feeling that. 
And well, and not just her. I'd say that's a that's a millennial thing. If there's one theme undergirding all of Noah Baumbach's pictures, it's the feeling of misspent time and not taking full advantage and not living up to what you want to be. Mm-hmm. And so I think what fascinates him is he saw this in his own generation, his Gen X generation, and now he's seen it again in millennials, only more pronounced. You think it's more pronounced or do you think it's just that maybe he's he felt that it was unique to his generation the first time around and now – kind of with hindsight being 2020, he sees that, okay, maybe this is something that actually happens with every generation. I would say more pronounced, actually, just because you have 18-year-olds, kind of like the character of Tony, who was her buddy, her co-author, who wasn't as good as she was, Mm -hmm. or excuse me, not co-author, but a fellow writer. And at one point in time, he says, which I think might as well be the millennial uh, mantra is, I think I'm a genius and I just want to fast forward to the time when everybody realizes yeah, it. T- Tony has a lot of really great lines. There's the, I, I mentioned the um, kind of writer's club that they, Tony also wants to get in this, this club. And initially they, neither of them do. And they're talking about how they heard other people in their dorms, basically getting what, what they do is they come into the dorm and they abduct you and throw a pie in your face when you are accepted into the club. And he said, the guy next door, uh, got in and he doesn't even look like a writer like that. That was his perspective on it was like, how how can he get in? Like, sure, he he might have written something great, but he doesn't even look like he should be. In right. The club. That's his that's his entire basis. Yeah. And and I don't think that that's uh, that off that a millennial or any young person would think that is that you have to have certain physical characteristics. And this Tony character embodies that because he wears the uh, he has the glasses and the mangy hair and he yeah. wears kind of the tweed he's, overcoat. He's definitely modeled himself to be doing book reads at any time. Now we should probably, and I'm the I'm the culprit of this. I I agree wholeheartedly. But we're mostly talking about Noah Baumbach and not so much about these pictures. But one other thing that I want to bring up and see if you agree is it seems like Noah Baumbach's pictures is the conflict, the individual conflict between coming to terms with your own plainness. And his characters really never do. But it seems like with the newer pictures, the reason they're ending on an up more up note is they are coming to terms with their own plainness. And it's not really a bad thing that we're like other people. There's nothing wrong with that. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's fair. I mean, it's yeah, it's these characters are finally actually having a self-reflexive moment, whereas his previous characters kind of just trudged on into the doom of continuing to do the same caustic thing that had gotten them in the awful place to begin with. Yeah, in effect, they never grow up. Yeah. All right, and you believe, and I I concur in many ways, that the reason for this is his co-writer, girlfriend, and star, Greta Gerwig. And Muse. I would would definitely say Muse. And certainly Muse. Yeah, and well, I guess not being able to see them in the writer's room, we're not sure who, who does what. But uh, let's talk about her in this picture. Uh, do you continue to have your your girlish oh, crush on her I, indie darling adorableness? I, I, I do. I absolutely do. And I, I love her in this movie because she's playing a character that is not entirely what you would expect from seeing her in seeing her in the small part in Greenberg, which for my money is the best. Like she I loved Greenberg was probably my favorite movie of the year. Uh, what was that like? 2010, 2011, whatever, whenever it came out. Um, but the moments with her were my absolute favorite parts of the movie. She just, I, I had never seen her before. She came up in sort of the mumblecore crowd. Um, and this is the first time I'd seen her on screen. There was just something about her that was, she's not exactly a starlet, but she demands attention on the screen. So then when Francis Ha was announced and I saw the trailer and saw that he's using her actually as the main character, I was thrilled. And, 
and love that. And but the the thing was that Frances Ha, that character is basically playing the same character that she was in Greenberg, which is sort of like a meandering. I don't know exactly going, what I'm going doing. nowhere and going there fast. Yeah, and and this character is not necessarily not that, but she's there's more dimensions to her at the very least. And she seems. I was very surprised when you first meet her. You hear that voicemail of hers. It was almost set me off guard because I wasn't expecting her to feel so composed. And so like, like she, she had everything lined out and knew what she wanted and knew what she was doing because, you know, in Francis Ha, she's kind of, she has that line about, um, I think it's maybe actually Josh Hamilton asks her, what do you do? And she says, well, it's difficult to say because I don't do what I do or something like that. Um, you know, she, she says that she's a dancer, Which is another she's... perfect millennial line. <laughs> yeah. Now, I think what makes her appealing in this picture and then others, but especially this picture, is it occurred to me someone said about Amy Schumer in Trainwreck that what makes her so effective is she always sounds kind of drunk. Mm-hmm. And I know that may sound odd, but I think Greta Gerwig, we've got to notice that a little bit about her. She always sounds like she's not in full possession of her mental faculties, either because of some form of inebriation, just a mild buzz, or she's just so high on life. I, I think it's probably the latter, if there's anything. Like, there yeah. is there is a just, like, easygoingness, which kind of gets her into trouble a lot of times. But in this picture, more so than Frances Haas, certainly in Frances Haas, she just never really realized that she wasn't growing up and she was fine with that. She she did towards the end. I mean, it, it eventually comes to that. But then she winds up back where she was. Spoiler alert. Uh, Kind of. There's, I think that final shot is a real like moment of decisive realizing that she she commits to something she never would have committed to before. But in but in, in contrast to Mistress America, though, wherever it's very pronounced that yes. she has a has a cri- a- identity from, crisis from from the very beginning. Yeah. So to that point, we've already talked about me not being paralyzed, but it being overwhelmed with feelings. You kind of already gave us an indication that this might be your the one for the year. Yeah, Were you yeah. overwhelmed with relatability and feelings watching this? I I was not, but I. Uh, no, not at all. And I'm I'm fine with that. I mean, there are I don't have quite the same reaction to Bombeck that you do. I mean, I think I actually I was the one that introduced you to Kicking and Screaming, which is the one that sort of blew your head off when you saw that. Well, I had seen Squid and the Whale and then yeah. and then, yeah, Kicking and Screaming. So. Well, well, when you saw that, as as you say, Josh Hamilton looks exactly like you in that and, movie. And listeners, was, I can't I can't stress this enough. This isn't a matter of, oh, you know, he, he and I share the same hair color. We look identical, <laughs> him in this movie and me. Um, and I've I've never had quite that reaction. Like Squid and the Whale is one where. Um, I think I share your sentiment of not Jeff Daniels being a reflection, but more like a Shakespearean foreshadowing, almost like the most terrifying thing that you could possibly possibly become. That's Jeff Daniels. Um, I didn't have anything like that here, but I I just I absolutely loved this movie. Like I I love the screwball nature of it. The way I mean the the writing, um, the delivery of the dialogue is all just on point, very good. There's, there's a lot of moments where there's this really great quick cutting where it's just two characters or, or sometimes even more like towards the middle of this movie, you begin to get this more ensemble cast and then characters are constantly talking over each other and that sort of thing. And then um, there's also these great super quick cuts that are actually taking all the air out of a scene just to make it more, more screwball, more, you know, kind of, um, fast and manic. And then he contrasts that with, he'll just let a scene breathe for a second. And so you'll have this quick, like bam, 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 bam. And then a really awkward sort of 
signature Greta Gerwig moment, perhaps like whenever she's, I think it's in the trailer. She's doing her performance up on, right, up on, the, on stage the stage and does yeah. her rewind. And there's just like this, this slow moment of nothing really happening. Or when her and Tracy first meet Brooke and Tracy first meet and Brooke says something, yells at her. And then you get like maybe 10 seconds of silence and her just walking towards Tracy real clumsily down these these steps it well it's it's the introduction of the the heroine coming down the steps kind of a cinderella moment almost but in, however in, the stairs are a, much longer yeah, than yeah it's, than it's usual. more realistic and it's less glamorous and there's not like swelling music or anything it's i love that and there's there's Pratt falls there's just there's quick weird dialogue that you you typically wouldn't get i mean at one point i think when they're first getting to know each other brooke asks tracy so you got a honey like, which just feels like, you know, that that 30 screwball sort of dialogue. Um, and then there's even the part in Connecticut where I believe it's Brooke or I can't remember if it's Brooke or Tracy, but one of them has the lines. Stop calling her old timey names like they're then become just self-reflexive of like, OK, we're we're having fun with this. We're doing this heightened reality. It's not supposed to be like a because I think Bombex movies generally are like just a little bit off from reality, but still pretty relatable the this seems like it's more in its own little bubble well and yeah and to that point is at first whenever i was watching that connecticut scene that you've already referenced uh, i was thinking this just why would someone do this but then i realized no what they're trying to do is create a screwball scenario mm. that's not necessarily supposed to be realistic that, is that where you kind of caught on to that uh it, uh, up till then i felt that it was trying to be almost a moving a narrative documentary sort of thing discussing millennial lifestyle huh. in new york because i i felt the screwball thing really early on. i mean probably probably at least by the the first meeting of them i mean like like, like i said that introduction of, of brooke is just sort of so like intentionally awkward and then and then you wrap it all in the the more rapid fire sort of dialogue that you get and then maybe uh, maybe it just felt familiar and not uh, familiar in a bad way, but it just felt familiar. And then at that point, everything up till then, it, it felt it finally, realistic and believable. It and finally then, got to the point where you realize that the, what, what, what it had been doing the whole time. Well, ma- I mean, maybe or, uh, or it ramped up even more. Yeah, at but that. I guess ramped up is a better okay. way to describe it, because at that point is one of the things, like I said, I thought, well, wait, there's no way this could have happened. But then I thought, well, they're creating a screwball scenario. Mm-hmm. Now, you and I have talked quite a bit so far about Gerwig and Bombeck, but I would actually argue that the individual on whom this picture, who's carrying this on their back in many ways, is Lola Kirk. Yeah, I, I'm i not going to argue with that at all. Like, I, I think that's absolutely true. Actually, Gerwig has said in interviews that she relates more with the Tracy character, the Lola Kirk character, and that's a little actually autobiographical of her kind of experience at that time. Um and I I like that they kind of Brooke Brooke definitely has a lot um, going on here. She's the subject of the title and the um, sort of what keeps the movie moving. But it is really Tracy's movie in, in, in a big way. I mean, it's probably what fifteen minutes before we meet Greta Gerwig. Well, a lot like the end of the tour is. It's mm. one of those things. <laughs> it's it's about it's about this mythic mythical character yeah. who we're deconstructing and showing as a real human being. But it's all through the vantage point of someone else. That's an interesting. I would not have made that comparison. Oh my god! That's I think pretty, that, I think it's yeah. kind of funny that the last three pictures we've talked about have all been very, very much about their generations. Yeah, uh, Ferris Bueller, and then the end of the tour. Those are very much Gen Xers, right? And then this is less Gen Xers. It's more millennial. Maybe it's just where my mind is. But I really do think that all of these pictures 
to me, the characters spring very, very purposefully from the way we think about their generations, be it Gen X or, or Millennial. Do you see that where I'm going with that? Or you no, I, I could see that for sure. Yeah. Okay. Um, it, and, you know, I, I think it's interesting also that, you know, we did into the tour last time. And, you know, that is about Gen Xers and Bombeck himself is a Gen Xer and has always, you know, been sort of making movies about his generation, even as they've they've aged up. All right. I'm going to suggest something that I already know you're going to disagree with, but I think it'll uh, produce some interesting back and forth here. Do you think? No. <laughs> all right. Do you think what? Well, yeah. Which which Noah Bombeck character would you most like to take on? <laughs> no, do you think that Noah Bombeck's characters are perhaps too much representations of whatever generation they are within in many ways because watching this i kind of felt and i know you disagree but i kind of felt like a lot of these characters were actually caricatures of how he sees millennials and how our culture sees millennials do you agree and do you think that's a bad thing um i i'm gonna say a i disagree b i think they are definitely heightened in this movie but that once again goes back to him sort of playing into that that screwball comedy thing. Um, another, actually another of his influences, he said on, on working on writing this film were like uh, something wild and after hours of Scorsese, the lone Scorsese comedy, um, which is a very kind of kooky gets uh, it, it gets very odd, very quick and very like out there very quick. So I, I think to lodge that against this movie is, a little, a little unfair because I don't think he's trying. It's not the squid and the whale where he's presenting something that feels very, uh, almost verite at times. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so if, if we were to talk about it with other characters, yeah, maybe in, in other movies. Yeah, maybe. But here I don't think so. And I, I think maybe, maybe he just has a hall pass to get away with it because of the kind of genre that he's working in. But, um, I, I don't feel it as I mean, do you see it as a crutch that he's doing this or that he's what I would not say painting is, it? is the word you hit hit on there was verite. And so that's that's why I didn't think this was a screwball until it became so unbelievable that I realized, OK, he's doing a screwball uh-huh. is I think that all of his pictures are verite, like you said. And I'm a little bit concerned. And I think what's going to prohibit him from going to the next level and making a truly capital G great film is that many of his scenarios are feeling, or rather many of his characters, it feels like I'm reading a Psychology Today article scripted out. Does that make sense? I, I top, guess top, so. Top I, six traits of millennials, see the, and the, then putting that into characters. The verite thing, for me, I think only really, in, in my opinion, only really happens from maybe Squid and the Whale and Margot at the Wedding. Like, you, you maybe have a little bit in Greenberg, but Greenberg is more a dark comedy, I would say. Whereas... Squid and the Whale and Margot at the Wedding, they feel like, particularly Margot at the Wedding, actually, like, uh, I've only seen that movie once when it when it came out, and I didn't love it much. I would actually, I would love to go back and rewatch it and see if my opinion changes at all. But my opinion at the time, which is going to sound really pretentious now that I am, am teeing this up in my head, was that it felt like Bombeck was trying to almost do a John Cassavetes thing, but... A, he doesn't really have the chops for it. Not and you know nothing, nothing against him. It's just it's not his thing. And, and B, there was something about the way that Cassavetes kind of collaborated with actors to to build a story. Where with uh, and, and not to say that Bombeck doesn't, but Bombeck I think has a master plan in his head from the beginning, and so he is really 
lining up all of the little toy soldiers to fit into his vision that he has from the start, where I think Cassavetes was more collaborative in that way. And so whenever he tries to mimic that uh, with, with something that is a little more verite, then it kind of falls apart. And I'm, I'm glad he's pulled out of that. Like I would say, I would say of, of the recent films, Greenberg, I don't, I don't really get that feeling. I get more, you know, it's, it's a solid dark comedy. Um, Francis Ha is definitely a, I mean, I think it's very self-aware of the dialogue. And, and I think he, he has, he's been that way, even going back to kicking and screaming, you know, he has dialogue that he realizes is heightened writer dialogue, but it's also just so good that he's able to get away with it. Um, I think what's what's going on here is that you and I are coming at this from very different places. As you are a great admirer of writer director Noah Baumbach, I am more Noah Baumbach's soulmate, and we both <laughs> share a dark soul. Uh-huh. And so that's why all of his pictures, as I said at the start, they they are about people who want to be great, coming to terms with their own plainness, and from that place, he he's seen that that trait he's identifying it in gen xers and identifying it in millennials mm-hmm. and so that's why i the verite springs most naturally to me is even if he heightens it it all does feel very much real and it feels like this is an individual who his base nature like myself it, is it cynical just, it strikes a raw nerve with you yeah, and so yeah. you you really like it's it's right in your vein well and yeah and so rather than say it's a paralyzing relatable it's it hits a raw nerve okay. i would say yeah Okay, so is this a movie? I I'm still not totally sure where you stand on this. Is this the movie that you recommend, or is it a little too? Uh, I would say that this film it's only 86 minutes, give or take. So it's it's not going to take a huge investment of time. It is potent elixir to any millennial who truly feels they're unique. I was reminded of the David Foster Wallace quote, which you mentioned last time where he says that the only thing that makes us individual is that we're all think that we're different from everyone else, when in fact we are all very we're all the same mm-hmm. and coming to terms with that i think has been the struggle in all of bombax films so i think that anyone who needs that lesson should see this film and should see all of bombax films but as far <laughs> as lesson ju- yeah as well and that it, it's it's more to me it's more of a good lesson than it was necessarily a great picture i would say it's 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 pretty good if you're a Bombeck fan or you're a fan of this type of movie, you should see it. But it's not something that I think will really stand the test of time. I'm still waiting for Bombeck's masterpiece. And I think in order for him to make that masterpiece, he needs to get away from just embodying the cliches. Not not even cliches, but the stereotypes about the different generations. I think his characters could feel more fully fleshed out if they were less millennial, Gen Xer, etc. Mm-hmm. But more individual to themselves and i think that's what's prohibiting him from getting to the next level do you see him as capable of doing that though or do you i I guess guess that remains to be seen yeah i i you know i'm going to recommend this movie wholeheartedly it's i really enjoyed it i love i love that he is kind of changing it up a little bit he's i don't think he's ever done anything that is this sort of in a genre itself um as far as uh, you know, approaching the screwball comedy and approaching it with, he kind of takes that classic Noah Bombeck dialogue and puts the screws to it a little bit and makes it even a little tighter and punchier and, and a little more heightened and then, and then just throws it up against itself. So it's, uh, there's a, a lot of these moments where it's, you know, very quick and rapid fire. And I really enjoyed that. I mean, I saw this movie in a theater alone 
and found myself laughing out loud multiple times. I and think that's, it, I, I find that to be a, a difficult thing with comedies is like a lot of times I think I, you know, I find it most enjoyable when I'm watching it with a crowd and like have that ability to laugh with someone. But I was, you know, just alone in my own little dark yeah, box. Definitely, definitely a waste of resources for the Hollywood theater chain to play this movie for one individual. I, I disagree. Totally worth it. All right. So Chris fell in love. Hunter learned a lesson. Chris, whenever you're partying down in the streets of Manhattan and you see your long dreamed about stepsister, you finally meet the Brooke in your life. What will you two be drinking? Um, my recommendation this time is not so much a reflection on the movie as a whole, but more something that I think pairs nicely with Brooke. It comes from Chalk Beer Company in Krebs, Oklahoma, and it's the Brewmaster Signature Series Goza. Now, the Goza style in general is a pretty uh, kind of sour tart beer, and this is maybe the most tart Goza I've ever had. Um, I really enjoyed it. It's, it's tart, it's grapefruity, but it also has a little hint of like a wheat beer flavor kind of tucked way back. Uh, it'll make you pucker when it hits your lips, but then it goes down really smooth and has an extraordinarily clean finish that doesn't linger too much. So you don't have just this kind of, it's not like having a Jolly Rancher kind of lingery flavor in your mouth. You know, this might actually be the Brooke Cardenas of beers. It's potent and exhilarating one moment and then gone the next. And, you know, we still have a little bit of time before the grass begins to brown. So next time you trim your lawn, reward yourself for a job well done with a Goza from Chalk. Now, Chris, you didn't really discuss the alcohol content of this Goza. Would you say that the effect of it is paralyzing or it strikes a raw nerve? I would say it's neither. It's actually a pretty low alcohol content. It's a it's a 4%. So this is, I guess you could consider it a session, although it's the style itself is a very low um, alcohol content style anyway. So it's not as if they've, they've pulled it down. That's just where it is. But yeah, you could drink this. Uh, you, if you wanted to, you could drink this all afternoon long. And all right. So then as you, you recommended something based on Brooke, I should just do something that represents my relationship with Noah Bombeck. So I would recommend absinthe or just straight rubbing alcohol. <laughs> that would probably be comparable. Okay. Uh, Mr. America is playing at art house theaters nationwide, but it might not be much longer. So check it out while you can. You'll probably be the only one in the theater, much like Chris. Wah, wah. And if you do, please tell us your thoughts at hello at warstartsatmidnight.com. Or if email isn't your thing, we'd still love to hear from you. Ring the red phone and leave us a voicemail at 484-424-6362. That's 484-4CINEMA. Stick around. Inspired by Greta Gerwig and Noah Baumbach, we'll be back after the break to discuss great director and actress collaborations. Stay away from Hazel Brace yourselves, Midnight Warriors. It's time for an aimlessly asinine alcohol analogy. If film theory were a liquor cabinet, the auteur theory would be the familiar $10 Franzia you glug down on a semi-nightly basis. By contrast, the male gaze theory would be the obscure scotch you deploy only to impress your most pretentious pals. Perhaps it sits on your shelf next to... 
the apparatus theory. Uh, I, I don't even know what that is. Yeah, I had to Wikipedia it. Hollow Marxist nonsense. Anywho, the male gaze argues that all representations of female on film exist through the perspective, or gaze, of the male viewer. Women aren't women on film. Women on film are simply how men see them. The male gaze theory affords us an intriguing entry into our special features topic today, great director and actress collaborations. For all the talk of Scorsese and De Niro, Kurosawa and Mifune, or the Johns, Wayne and Ford, far less attention is paid to the captivating collaborations between directors and actresses. Rather than speculate on the why, however, Chris and I will focus our male gaze, or rather our man-child gaze, onto these underappreciated pairings. Are these collaborations in the truest sense of the word? A partnership between two co-dominant artists? Or is it simply a dude director forcing his male gaze onto his favorite female subject? Chris, these are some pretty deep waters we're wading into, so shall we start with the shallow end first? Well, we are pretty shallow, so yes, we shall. All right then, Chris. What is your favorite director-actress collaboration, and what does it say about females in film? Uh, I mean, I gotta go, what, Michael Bay and Megan Fox, right? You know what, Chris? That is that is such a prime example that I can't even believe I didn't even consider it. But actually, you say that in jest, but when you think about it, you might be right, because that is a pure example of an individual using a female to kind of craft his ideal of uh, his idea of the idea of female and then her rebelling against it because she actually called him a a Nazi. She called him Hitler. Yeah. So if there's more a better representation of the male gaze out there, I don't think it exists more so than Michael Bay and Megan Fox. Okay, so we we're done with this conversation, right? We can uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Well, on. if that is indeed your favorite, it's my favorite. I know that. So as long as you're not kidding. Uh, so truly, what is your favorite example of uh, male female collaboration, or rather, director actress? Uh, so I I was looking into this, and I found that you know, in doing research, there's a lot of them where I've seen a couple of the movies, not a lot where I've seen the whole scope of. Of films and I, you know, I kind of struggled with well, how many movies do they have to work on together to call it a uh, a collaboration? And I guess you know with Bombeck and Gerwig, it's three. She's a supporting actor in Greenberg, and then a fairly main character in in the other right. Two. And and provided they don't break up, there's every indication that they'll continue working together. Right, right. Which I don't know how that goes because I mean he wrote uh, Greenberg with Jennifer Jason Lee, who he was dating at the time, so. Yeah. Fingers yeah. crossed they stay together. But there were a couple that came to mind that I have seen quite a few of. And so I'm going to start off with Gina Rowland and John Cassavetes, who, like Gerwig and Bombeck, were collaborators, but also um, in a relationship together, you know, husband mm-hmm. and wife. Right. And I think, you know, it might be it'll be interesting to see kind of how this goes. This might be a recurring theme throughout. Is the being in relationships? Yeah. Um, which actually might feed right into the male gaze feedback into mm-hmm. the male gaze so we'll see but uh, i really like that that collaboration together i wasn't even when mentioning uh bombeck trying to ape cassavetes earlier i wasn't even thinking about this conversation that it would come back up but you know what i was saying there about cassavetes being collaborative like i think they worked so well together because of the way that cassavetes liked to work and you know she was just so comfortable with him, you know, there's, I, I think the classic is a woman under the influence. Um, but then they've, they've done many, many other, uh, films together. I mean, they did faces, they did Gloria, they did love streams, which I just recently picked up, uh, from the, you know, 50% off criterion, uh, Barnes and Noble sale, but I haven't, haven't yet watched. Um, 
did a bunch, I think 10 movies in total, and I haven't seen them all, but um, every time they work together, those tend to be my favorite of the Cassavetes films. And I, and I love his work. I love the way that, that, that he works. They, there's just a nice energy. They, they seem to feed off of each other very well. Well, the thing about that relationship is I don't think I could ever see Gina Rollins with another man besides James Garner. Hmm. who she was married to in the notebook. <laughs> so anything else would feel like she was committing adultery. Well, Kidding. So speaking of, while we're on the topic of relationships, uh, a person who I didn't even consider talking about a moment ago in regards to Noah Baumbach, but I think there's similarities, would be Woody Allen. Mm-hmm. And two of his favorite female compatriots were Mia Farrow and Diane Keaton, who he's both, who he broke up with since then. Yeah. And then actually it's moved on more to Scarlett Johansson, yeah, I, I hadn't thought about that. Like, I didn't include Alan because I feel Alan has put out far too many movies that I have not seen. And so I, I don't feel qualified to speak to that at all. Well, I would say that Mia Farrow, I believe Mia Farrow came after Diane Keaton. And so not only was he in relationships with these people, but he was filming their relationships. Mm-hmm. Annie Hall, especially. Yeah. And so you see a lot of similarities. They're, they're waifish, kind of free-spirited types, both Mia Farrow and Diane Keaton. And so that would probably be a very literal example of the male gaze, but it's one in which the female is participating. Yeah. So they are crafting their image of womanhood in his in his in his scenario, but they're very much a part. They're very much a collaborator of that. So even though it's from Woody Allen's perspective, his male gaze, as it were, they're helping to craft it. Did, did you just take the male gaze and apply the apparatus theory to it almost? Like they're existing within the male gaze, but by existing I, within the male gaze, they react to it and create you know, something if I had enough, different. If I had enough confidence in my knowledge of the apparatus theory, <laughs> I would maybe say so. But more so, I did the $10 Franzi, the auteur theory, and combined it with the okay. male gaze. Uh, another relationship and a collaboration is Tim Burton and Helena Bonham Carter. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you think that that's just a matter of two very unusual souls even though they they've I mean, got they've broken up but two very unusual souls i you know i i think they fit so well together you know i i thought about burden and winona writer which i th- believe they did a couple together but then mm-hmm. came across helena bottom carter and couldn't believe that i i hadn't thought of that one and um i think she's a lot of times you know burden for i don't know how long now for for quite a while has been a little off the deep end for me but i would say bottom carter is still the thing that even if I don't like the movie, she's the thing that I tend to like the most about Burton's movies. And that would seem to be that relationship seems to me less an example of male gaze, because I think all of his movies are more so about Johnny Depp. Mm-hmm. That's more he likes working his, with his well, wife. And he, he, his and movies, his movies are almost asexual in a in an odd way. Like, no, even yeah, if I would relationships, agree with that, yeah. There's like, yeah, no. Yeah. The, the, the male and female, there's not there's not a whole lot of dichotomy between the two. Yeah. And so I think that's more of an example of. She's a good actress. They liked working together, so he cast her. It mm-hmm. wasn't he wasn't trying to craft an image of females. Yeah. Um, it seems like looking over our list that a lot of these are people who had a relationship. It's not just a working relationship, but a relationship yeah, relationship. Yeah. So the Cohen brothers and Francis McDormand, rather, uh Joel Cohen, who is married to her. Right. But I mean, and they've been working since the since before we were born, since the early to mid eighties on Blood Simple, their very first movie she was in. So uh, and she's in their their next one, Hail Caesar, which is coming out sometime next year. Um, I yeah, this is the one on my entire list where I've actually seen every movie, um, only because I've seen every Coen Brothers movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love the way that they utilize her in kind of she's 
she can play a lot of different parts and they, they allow her to kind of explore that. And I mean, like Marge Gunderson and Fargo, she's a great, great. I mean, if, if you want to, you know, hold the male gaze up to that, I think this short of, sort of shatters that lens or, or whatever metaphor you want to use. Like, I mean, this is bringing a, a very strong, smart, I mean, she's, she's, stronger she's pregnant and she's stronger than probably everyone on the force with her she's smarter than anyone like and and not just the the police officers but also the criminals and everyone else you know she single-handedly kind of puts together well the, the, it's the one of those things i'm going to play devil's advocate just because that's more interesting could that be simply a matter of that would be their ideal woman and so they're crafting their ideal woman and grabbing francis mcdormand maybe it could be maybe francis mcdormand is playing herself in that that movie i you know i hadn't thought of it that way it, it could be but well and that's kind of the danger of any film but, theory is you can quickly go down the rabbit uh, hole yeah yeah i guess that's true but i think the the thing with this one is uh it's not and i guess also the thing with that gets a little icky sometimes with with this discussion of the male gaze is when it's sexualized or becomes just an object and i would say uh, you can say a lot of things about Marge Gunderson. She's not any man's object. Okay, you just said the O word, object. So Uh-oh. I think this could not uh, lead any more clearly into perhaps the prime example. We of already the, talked about Michael Bay and Megan Fox. Okay, fine. The second best example of this, and this is a person who is never in a romantic relationship with any of his characters, but he wanted to be. Uh, and that is Alfred Hitchcock and his blonde goddesses, starting mm-hmm. with Grace Kelly and moving on to... Ava Marie Saint, Kim Novak, and t- excuse me, Kim Novak, Ava Marie Saint, and then Tippi Hedren. So let's talk a little bit about that. Do you think that I'll ask this? Since Grace Kelly was the first, and one would presume he probably would have continued to cast her had she not become Princess Monaco, do you think that in many ways he was trying to recreate Grace Kelly? That she was the one he I, wanted? I would say that's exactly like I. You probably framed it better than I would have. I would have probably said, well, he was just kind of creating that same character over and over again. But it probably was Grace Kelly that he was just trying to replace. He had lost her. And so he then the subsequent actresses just became his fill-ins. See, I love discussing this because it's it's giving me chills. But uh, because I do think that people always refer to the blonde goddesses. But I do think as accomplished, especially Avery Mustaine, she had an Academy Award. But as accomplished as these other actresses were, they were to me, placeholders for the one he truly wanted. And that's why you get a picture like Vertigo, which is so unnerving because that's almost literally trying to recreate Grace Kelly, Mm -hmm. that character. And then later on in his career, you get uh, The Birds and Psycho. Janet Lee, I forgot to mention Janet Lee. The Birds and Psycho is he's almost punishing these women. And what's do you you think that that we can make the argument that he's punishing them for not being who he wants or to just assert his dominance as the male director? I don't know about that. I, I mean, I think – or are, are you saying asserting his dominance over almost saying, hey, Grace Kelly, look at what I'm doing to your like, – like, like it's a voodoo doll well, or maybe, just – maybe the fact that these women he knew, given the way he looked, he knew that they would never find him attractive. And so he's punishing them for being beautiful and young, whereas he's old and not beautiful. Do you think that that played into it at all? I, I think it's definitely possible. I mean, Hitchcock's, any other director, maybe not, but with him. Yeah. You know, I wouldn't say any other director. I mean, what about someone like Lars von Trier and uh, Scarlett Gainsbourg? I mean, well, do you think that's what it's about then with, with him, with, with Hitchcock or with with Lars von Trier? Because um, it I, seems like he just wants to tear the human body apart. Yeah, that's that's exactly I think the it doesn't matter who it is like and 
Um, he's done it with several actresses along the way. Um, some that did not return for, for a second helping yeah, for, for some reason, reason, for some reason, Scarlett Gainsbourg, it seems to be okay with it. Um, yeah, I, I think with him, it, it's, I think he has a, I think it's twofold. I think he has a weird unsettling relationship with women, but then I think he also has a weird unsettling relationship with humanity in general. All right. Uh, speaking of a weird unsettling relationship, in many ways it would have been ideal to end on Hitchcock just because that's the primest example. But we can't escape this topic without talking about your guy, David Lynch and Laura Dern. Do you hmm. think – what do you think about that relationship? You are more knowledgeable of him than I. Yeah. You know, I didn't consider that one. Well, I, I looked at it, but I didn't qualify it for this because I feel like it's not it's not quite the same as some of the others that we've spoken about. I think he's just happened to cast her – over the I think three times over the course of his career for roles that he just thought she she worked in like it doesn't feel like it's quite as much so you of a don't going th- back we'll see but then you've got something and this is the only one I've seen but Blue Velvet I mean uh-huh. she's he's very very much trying to cast someone in the mold of the 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 blonde ha- the blonde haired blue eyed nineteen fifties right but I don't think innocent. he's obsessed with that he's he's more obsessed with w- the bigger picture that he's aping is of that nineteen fifties film not not specifically her i mean you know wild at heart which she did with nicholas cage um is actually just i now i'm not gonna be able to think of the movie it's basically just recreating a brando film so that's once again playing with not necessarily focused on the female but focused on this bigger picture of a movie of a a movie from a period of time and so i mean i like their work together but uh, I, I don't know if it quite qualifies. And, so, I, and I should say, I haven't seen Inland Empire, his n- most recent, mm-hmm. which was like eight years ago um, that she was in. So I can't speak to that one. So then it's almost more, minus the the romantic relationship, but it's almost more of a Joel Cohen, Francis McDormand of she just happens to be a talented actress who he wants to put in these movies he was going to make anyway. Yeah, I, I, I think that's, uh, yeah, I think she's right for the role. And just whenever he has roles come up that, that fit her, he puts her in. But um you know, it's not like he it's not like he's gone back to her time and time and time and time again. All right. So, Chris, being a dark Sith Lord myself, I am, of course, prone to absolutes. Do you think that directors use their favorite female collaborator as an effort to craft their image of female them? Or do you think it's more an instance of they just work well together? You and your absolutes. Um, absolutes make for more interesting conversation. They're, they they're usually they're usually I, wrong. I, they're I, usually. I feel like I feel like you land somewhere. Like you land firmly in one, and then I land in like, yeah, whatever, man. No, I mean, the, it depends. The, the answer is almost universally it depends. But yeah, uh, I mean, and, and that's that's ultimately my answer. I think on a case to case basis, you know, it depends on the director. Um, I I think if we want to look at it from a historical perspective, then it might actually fall into the male gaze a little more. Well, um, see, my argument to that, because I don't necessarily uh, I don't necessarily disagree with you, but my argument to that would be, isn't John Ford just as much crafting his ideal male through John oh, Wayne yeah, as ab- absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. But I don't think at the same time, I don't think John Ford is, you know, objectifying John or creating Wayne, a submissive or, character. Yeah, exactly. He's he's creating almost the the man, the hero that he wishes he could be, you know, in a way. And that's. About as, you know, I think for John Ford, about as far into any theory that that he would go. I think if you went any further with that, he would dismiss it as, no, we were just making a movie. 
And actually, that's probably as good a way to end as any, because the way I was going to say is the only one true absolute I think you and I can both agree on is that we are completely underqualified uh, to discuss absolutely. this topic. Um, but perhaps you, dear listener, are better at discussing it. Why don't you tell us your favorite director-female collaborations and what you like about that relationship? Also, tell us where we went wrong, because I'm sure we said some terrible things here, and you could clear it up. And uh, maybe tell us about the apparatus theory, if you know. Yes, and actually, if you could please... Please explain the apparatus theory. We'd love that. Please do so at hello at warstartsatmidnight.com. Stick around for our really rad recommendations coming up next. All right, Hunter, recommendation time again. Uh, we've been talking quite a bit about the male gaze. Do you have something that, that fits into that little box? Um, kind of. It's not a male director forcing his will onto a female actress, but rather a male comedian, two male comedians forcing their will onto a unsuspecting subject. I've wanted to recommend this for the past couple of weeks, but none has really, none of the things we've been talking about have tied into this. And then Ironically, this topic today just kind of sort of does, and that's An Idiot Abroad. An Idiot Abroad is a TV show on Netflix, which was started in Britain in 2010, I believe, and it's just now coming to Netflix. Can I say something real quick? Yes, sir. This is a movie that Hunter will not stop talking to me about and recommending. Well, not a movie, a TV show. I'm sorry, a TV show. And I think it goes all the way back to uh, Inside Out, maybe, that I wanted to (laughs) recommend this. But it's a British show on Sky TV, and in essence, it's a travelogue show about this guy who goes to the Seven Wonders of the Earth. However, he hates traveling. He's he's someone who doesn't like escaping his comfort zone, and his comfort zone is incredibly narrow. It's probably not even bigger than his living room. And not only is he forced to go visit the Seven Wonders, but he's forced to engage in the most unpleasant aspects of these various countries. For instance, in India, he has to live in abject poverty. And so they have a camera crew recording uh, all of his complaints throughout So it really is great comedy, and the reason it kind of ties into the male gaze is Ricky Gervais, the host of the show and executive producer, described it as the most expensive practical joke ever (laughs) perpetrated because they're taking this guy, the titular idiot, Carl Pilkington, and forcing him to do something he absolutely does not want to do, Mm -hmm. and you and I get to uh, enjoy the comedy. So that is An Idiot Abroad on Netflix. Hunter, what if I relate too closely with The Idiot and it uh, I actually do. You know that Donald Trump, uh, Frank from It's Always Sunny Things, where who said it, Donald Trump or Frank from It's Always Sunny? Oh, I hadn't seen that one. I had seen the one with Lucille Bluth from uh, uh, Arrest Development. Yeah, there's a whole bunch. But I would argue that you could probably do the same thing with me and Carl Pilkington. Who said it, Hunter <laughs> Case or Carl Pilkington? We're remarkably similar. Maybe I'll throw that together. Yeah. So I, with my recommendation this time, I'm going to cheat a little bit and pull a Hunter Cates. I've got two. 
my first one is actually my Friday featured flicks recommendation this week, and that's Kicking and Screaming, Noah Baumbach's first film. I spoke about it a little bit. To to find out why this is the movie that scared Hunter so much, you should really check out his midweek memo article on, and, on the website. Yeah, and not just – it's not like I'm just a frightful person. I had every reason to be scared by this. Even Chris acknowledged, yeah, that's pretty weird. Yeah, you need – I mean, honestly, you just need to look at the, the picture that I've put together of them side by side. It's, it's odd. It's very odd. Um, but this is one of those movies that I feel like almost no one's seen. If I ever bring it up, people think I'm talking about the Will Ferrell soccer movie, which really – Makes my heart a little sad, um, but it's on Netflix right now. I highly, highly recommend it. Um, and it's it's sort of the prototypical um, Bombeck movie, which maybe it should be being his first, that every time I go back to it, I find I enjoy it more and more. It's almost like quicksand. Um, just the dialogue is so good and tight and the the characters are, are fun and effervescent, even if they are making some pretty terrible decisions at times. Um, it's got a great supporting role by Eric Stoltz, who, uh, as some of you may know, uh, was originally Marty McFly. And um, it's it's a great little uh, comedy about uh, Gen Xers who have just graduated college and don't know what to do with themselves. And so it maybe relates to our millennial generation right now as we have all just graduated college or are continuing to graduate college. Uh, my second recommendation is the fantastic Mr. Fox. And uh, I won't say too much about this other than it's a, a movie that Bombeck and Wes Anderson co-wrote together. And I think it has a lot of Wes Anderson's an interesting director in that he has such a, you can tell that a movie is a Wes Anderson movie, but just by looking at a frame of it, but up until grand Budapest hotel, he's always worked with a co-writer. He wrote two movies with Bombeck. He wrote The Life Aquatic and this, Fantastic Mr. Fox. And I, I think there is a bit of uh, Bombeck that you can feel in the script. I, I don't think he had too, too much to do with, you know, the direction, that sort of thing. But um, there's an ongoing gag that I love. And I, I don't know who it came from. Maybe it came from Wes Anderson. Maybe it came from the two of them together. But there's this ongoing gag because it's, you know, it's ostensibly a children's movie, even though it's a little adult Um based on a children's book that being from Roald Dahl is itself a little adult, but uh, they, instead of just trying to cut out profanity altogether, they actually just replace any word of profanity with cuss. And so, uh, you know, it's as inane as what the cuss are you talking about? You cuss and talking to me, you know, those sorts of things too. Like there's a line about maybe halfway through where, George Clooney's character, Mr. Fox, just says, this is a total cluster cuss, which there's. So it's kind of like watching Casino on USA, I guess. <laughs> I, but yeah, but but uh, easier to follow, easier to understand. I was about to say, and, who could ever imagine that little animals would have such filthy mouths? Yeah, it's it's great, though. It's available to rent all the usual places. It's also available on a really beautiful Criterion Collection Blu-ray. I recommend it in that format. Um, it's it's gorgeous. All right, Chris, I've actually never seen this picture. You said it was co-written by Noah Baumbach. Is there any character in this that I could relate to? Maybe Mr. Badger? Um, yeah, Actually, I, I think there might be. The Jason Schwartzman character, maybe. I don't know. He he plays uh, Mr. Fox's son, and uh, I can't think of his name. Kit, maybe? And his cousin, uh, Christofferson, played by Wes Anderson's brother, comes to live with him, and he's basically... Uh, is better at every, he's a better athlete. He's a better, 
he he does yoga he does like jujitsu or karate and um there's i'm not saying that you're this person but maybe there's just a there's a nice quality to the way that he he is very self-aware and and you know, aware of his flaws or, or his flaws shine through, I should All say. All right. Well, I'm always looking for filmic doppelgangers, particularly stop motion animal doppelgangers. Right, right. So I'm looking forward to that. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that's a wrap for another episode of War Starts at Midnight. Check us out online at warstartsatmidnight.com. And of course, be sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter, The Midweek Memo. It's filled with recommendations, news about upcoming episodes, and exclusive articles written just for you like my article about my tempestuous relationship with Noah Baumbach in his films. So you're definitely going to want to check that out. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr at WSAMPod. And if you've made it this far into the credits, it's pretty safe to assume you like us. So why don't you stop what you're doing right now and leave us a review in iTunes. It'll help us reach new listeners and it'll make you feel awesome. On the contrary, if you don't like feeling awesome, you'd rather feel like an asshole and rather just hate listen to these credits, well, then tell us everything we got wrong at hello at warstartsatmidnight.com. Or we'd also like to take your call on that bright red telephone at 484-424-6362. I'd like to clarify, you don't have to be an asshole to, to email us, but, you know, we're, we're willing I, to... You don't have to, but it would help. We'd be more likely to read your response. Music on this week's show is by Escondido. Hear their new single, Heart is Black, at thebandescondido.com. It's from their sophomore album, Walking with a Stranger, due out early next year. Tune in next time when we get to the choppa to discuss Chris Gallagher's war crime, Predator. Thanks for listening, Midnight Warriors. Ciao. quick i'm sorry i would just like to point out that uh i don't know how i didn't bring this up when we were talking about the male gaze but you broly flipped your hat backwards oh yeah absolutely for this I, was that intentional <laughs> no i just like it better that way okay i honestly just like it better that way